In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Betches Media presents... Chrissy Teigen referred to Donald Trump as a pussy-ass bitch. Look, he's a sick puppy. He, he, shouldn't be, he shouldn't be there. Well, I lost half a day of skiing. I'm going to punch him out and I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to be happy. The Betches Sub Podcast. A speaker has not been elected. Hello, this is the Betches Sub Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. I'm Amanda Duerin, the news director at Betches. I'm Elise Morales, a comedian and writer of the Betches Sup newsletter. And I'm Millie Tamaris, comedian and sub video contributor. I mean, we do cover the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. And I think we, even though we are non-watchers or non-completists, I think we do need to acknowledge the biggest topic in news and politics today is the Vanderpump Rules finale. I feel like we need to do like, it's like a <laughs> land acknowledgement, but for fighting white people, yeah. a VPR acknowledgement. Yeah. Well, I just have to say that I never watch VPR. I watched a few TikToks to catch up like we all did. And then I started watching the finale. I watched like the first half. I say as somebody who just, I think you can watch some TikToks and then jump right in. The purist will say, don't do that. I watched 140 episodes so far. <laughs> oh, yeah? yeah? I feel like it's but a bigger I think bigger you're payoff. right. I think you're right. Yeah, it is a bigger payoff. For the 10 straight men that watch this or that listen to this podcast, it is the equivalent of never watching a Marvel movie, only watching Black Panther and then getting into Infinity Wars or Endgame. Yes. Like, of course, if you've watched every Marvel movie, it's going to pay off better. You're going to get all the Easter eggs and everything. But you or you can watch a recap on YouTube by some girl that lives in Kansas and you'll be <laughs> caught up is all I'm saying. Yeah. I think that well, I I I'm planning to watch the finale today even though I'm the same as Millie have watched like I I feel like I have absorbed so much of the information just mm-hmm. like Absolutely. Mm-hmm. not even seeking it out on TikTok, but by just Against having a TikTok. Will. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I engage in cu- the culture. And so for that reason, I feel like it's I get the broad strokes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I do want to watch this reunion. Yes. Which uh, I have engaged in a, like watching a reunion for a show I didn't watch previously, but I am very excited for this one. And to Millie's point about Marvel, that's kind of how I felt going to see the Super Mario Brothers movie, mm. where I was like, I'm aware of the general right. players here. Yeah. I've uh, sat in a boy's dorm while Mario Kart was being played. Mm-hmm. I have played Mario myself. Did I get maybe all of the Easter eggs? No, but I enjoyed the movie. I had a good time. Honestly, another thing was like euphoria. You know, I can't I can't watch that show. Makes me want to be a social worker. It makes me <laughs> scared for the youth of America. <laughs> but everyone was like, Zendaya's acting in this specific episode or the play, you know, the play episode. Yeah. Lexi's I play. Had, Lexi's play. 
guess what? I just hopped right in. And and mm-hmm. and that's what I'm telling you today is that you can hop right into the finale with just a cursory knowledge. And it is really good because it's really just, it's really, for me, it it's really like, good. it's really good because it's literally like, I'm sure people who have been cheated on, you it's all the things you wish you can say and like being mm-hmm. composed. And I don't know, it's just really good. And I haven't even finished it yet. You haven't so, finished yeah. the finale. Oh, I, haven't I haven't watched it. I'm finale. like, should I, I'm on season six, almost done with it. I'm like, should I, as, as I'm talking about this, I'm thinking about like our reviews and half of them are like, please never speak another word about pop culture. I hate it. I simply want hard well, news. And then the other half well, is like, please more pop culture. <laughs> but you know what? Like we said, monoculture. This is yeah. punk rules. I think I am going to indulge in the finale. But the thing about this show famously after six seasons is that these characters do not grow. So you can really jump in anywhere. And mm-hmm. I think why the payoff is so good might be because Ariana really is probably the most one of the most consistently likable people in reality TV. Like mm-hmm. I she has some weird like guys girl moments at the beginning but otherwise very likable. So you can just assume that you love that you stan her. I can yeah. I can attest to that through six seasons. But um Man, yeah. if we if we had a paywall, we'd do that recap behind the paywall. <laughs> well, commenters and voicemailers, tell us if you want a paywall. As you were talking, I was thinking, you know, we are kind of the Vanderpump Rules and Marvel Movies of podcasts. If you do not follow podcasts, you can jump right in. You can so tell your right friends, so how do I get into politics? Listen to the Betches Sub Podcast. Yeah. Will you get you all the Jump right eggs? in anywhere. Maybe not. But Maybe it's not. Fine. Maybe not. What, did I exactly. have some guys girl moments at the beginning? Sure. <laughs> you know what? That's but that is what makes Ariana likable is because who hasn't had guy girl guys girl moments ten years ago? Maybe that's why mm-hmm. she is so universally stand. You know, it may be like uh, it's always going to take a subtle guys girl to get the the guys to support her mm-hmm. as well. But you know, we have another. We have oh, we have a, another villain to discuss today Mm -hmm. as we start with our number today's number is 20 that is roughly the number of years lauren bobert was married to her husband jason bobert roughly because i was committed to this bit before i and i couldn't find an exact timeline but they met when they were like 16 to 18 and now she's 36 they're getting divorced and this is of course i don't even think i need to tell you how many times this woman has tweeted in support of traditional family values Mm -hmm. keeping families together how Mm -hmm. how modern culture is ruining families but this two decade marriage has come Come to an end. I thought the writers were on strike, but everything I'm about to tell you is just is magical. It just comes from a beautiful imagination. <laughs> I also do want to note that Jason is spelled J A Y S O N, which I do. It feels important. <laughs> and the way that Bobert Bobert is spelled, Bo-Bear, it should that's Bo-Bear. our Easter egg. It should be called Bobert. Bobert, Lauren but, Bobert. But yes. it's called Bobert's because they yes. want to be American. So because mm-hmm. he's Jay son. So um, son. Jason was reportedly served divorce papers unexpectedly while he was cleaning his gun and drinking a beer on his porch. <laughs> These are all true facts, unless the process server lied. The process Got server it. who was giving him the dissolution of marriage papers, which he did not want or apparently expect. Jason began yelling expletives at this person and then let his dogs loose on them. The Boberts met when they were teenagers. In a, this is crazy because he was like texting with the Daily Beast, which is not like a liberal publication. He was like, I didn't do that. I wasn't cleaning my gun. It's all lies. I was just sad. I'm not ready. To, you know, I'm just yeah. sad my marriage ended. So again, the Boberts met when they were teenagers and they had, I'm just going to pronounce their name differently every time. They had their first son together when the now Congresswoman was 18. That son is about to become a father, making Bobert a newly divorced grandmother at 36, which you know what? We're morally neutral on this. If this woman was also morally neutral on a lot of perfectly fine right, things in society. Exactly. 
Jason, Jason with a Y, was arrested. This famously, famously origin story of Jason was arrested in 2004 and pleaded guilty to exposing his penis to two women at a bowling alley. I believe they were also seventeen women. Yeah. yeah. So girls. Yeah. Showing him to two girls. Showed his dick to two girls at a bowling alley. She stood by her man. She stood mm-hmm. by her man. Even though later that same year they were each arrested after domestic violence incidents involving each other. So just mm-hmm. like constantly calling the cops on each other. I actually did not know that Miss Bobert had such a rap sheet, but this United States Congresswoman has also been charged with crimes related to disorderly conduct at a music festival. I feel like <laughs> you've got to be really wiling out at a music festival, letting her untrained dogs loose on a puppy that they hurt and rolling her truck into a ditch, which apparently you can get charged with careless driving. She tweeted, you know, respect my privacy, long, great marriage. We, of course, wish it could have, but, you know, times, sometimes there are differences. Yeah, I mean, does she respect other people's privacy with regard to what they, who they want to have relationships with, how they want to express their identity, what they do behind closed doors? Absolutely not. So again, it's like, would I would I care about any of this stuff if she wasn't someone who wants to pass a bunch of anti-LGBTQ uh, legislation? If she's someone who honestly probably seems like she would get on the anti-no-fault divorce train if that's where if that comes rolling into the station sometime soon. It's like she just she sucks. And I feel like another thing that I always try to bring home with Lauren Bobert, Lauren Bobert, is that her and her husband did own a restaurant called Shooter's Grill in Rifle, Colorado, where all of the servers had guns. So Shooter's <laughs> Grill, Rifle, Colorado, the food has to be nasty. I mean, this oh. is how, this yeah. is how, It's oh like God. the crustiest potato skins. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You don't the, feel driest, the driest wings, nuggets. Everything comes with coleslaw, even though you didn't ask for it. Yeah, Yeah, no. But all of of this story, like everything about this woman, it really feels like it's like written by a European satire writer. It's crazy. Shooter's Grill in Rifle, Colorado. I can't. Shooter's Mm -hmm. Grill, Rifle, Colorado. This is my thing. This is the thing that jumps out at me. That's telling that the story that I want to know is if your husband flashes his dick to two teen girls at a bowling alley. What is the thing that got you to divorce him years, years later? <laughs> right? Like, what was the thing? I feel like it it, it must have been, it must have been. He cheated something. with Trisha Cotham. Uh, uh, well, I'm thinking it's something like he chewed popcorn the wrong way and she had enough. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it was definitely. like a buildup or something. I don't know. It was just he something- wanted to go skydiving on mushrooms, or what is what does Tom Sandoval want to do? Oh my god! <laughs> I'm thinking. See, I go the other way, where I think that it's a thing of like, and this is just wild speculation, obviously, but it's like she's famous now. She's all in. She she's made a name for herself. She can, you know, she mm-hmm. can get the her pick of. Uh, crazy gun loving guys who would show their dick to children <laughs> she could have any of them so it's like, yeah well, Matt gates because he's married to ginger lucky and also <laughs> likes to right. fuck teens yeah yes yeah but you know she can have a matt gates-esque figure and i feel like maybe now at this point she's kind of like unimpressed mm-hmm. with uh what he's bringing 
she's in her prime. She's in her mid thirties. Like she could, if she 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 could definitely bag bag another dude. And like you said, unfortunately, there are probably uh, more more of these types of gentlemen than we would prefer in this, well, I'm in sure, this great nation. I'm sure if you're a Republican woman, you probably can clean fucking house <laughs> oh with my God, these yeah. guys. I mean, if you don't care about fucking unwashed penis you ever get on that part of tiktok where it's just like some girl that has like no opinions of her own and it's just like oh i get a lot of attention if i wear daisy dukes and an american flag stuff all over the place and i say i hate trans people yeah and just all um, the comments are like dream girl yeah i'm sure you're cleaning up but in the way that you can clean up like the clearance aisle at the dollar store Everything's is this defective. product that you want do we do, is this high quality is this Something sustainable? Will it it last? Is it safe? Definitely not. Is it flammable? Yes. But you can clean up and get a lot of it. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure she's getting, I'm sure she's getting, um, you know, Republican, uh, you know, offers left and right. And then she got this guy at home who probably ain't never washed a dish in his life. Um, And, you know, she's like, well, if I'm going to be with a guy that doesn't wash dishes... I might as well be with <laughs> um, a younger one with a, a better career one who has a abs <laughs> and who doesn't <laughs> who doesn't love the bowling alley. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift, because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click gift mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's Newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com. Newly with two U's with code FeverDream20.
Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. All right. Let's move on to our main news. Our most prolific woman in the wrong has moved up to main news today. We will not belabor this because we have had this conversation many times, most recently on our May 11th episode. So if you want to know more about uh, North Carolina state legislator Tritha Cotham and her party swapping, go listen to that. But as we discussed a few times and as we expected but certainly hoped otherwise, she did go ahead and give Republicans the veto-proof majority they needed to override Democratic Governor Roy Cooper's veto and implement a 12-week abortion ban in North Carolina. Previously, abortion was legal in that state through 20 weeks. Uh, that state is generally very important because it's really one of the main areas that you can go to in the South, as well as like still North Carolina before that, or South Carolina before that ban goes into effect. Uh, Florida's ban at six weeks is currently like in the courts, but this was definitely a place where you could, you, you know, you knew you were safe to go through 20 weeks. Um, this lawmaker, Trisha Cotham, again, we mentioned last week, she once spoke out about her own reliance on abortion access. Her excuse for this was that she felt like this was a compromise. It's like she just added it all up and this was the average. And she said it reflects a wide variety of views on abortion access. Um, you know, they're going to say a lot about these 12 and 15 week bans that most pregnancies are ended in the first trimester. But there are a tremendous amount that are not. We have, you know, the Constitution, we were told, gave us the right to an abortion. And even, you know, it has all of the, you know, the exceptions, but we've had so many women tell us incredibly painful stories over the past year of like being near death before they could be helped because doctors just weren't willing um, to like sacrifice themselves or their licenses to provide care. So, you know, I... I know we have a lot of listeners in North Carolina. This is devastating, especially because I know there are people that are working on a, a legitimate recall effort. I've heard from a few people, and I sent you guys um, a couple screenshots of DMs that like kind of what, what we've already heard the reporting about why Cotham switched parties, but like she was just mad and felt undervalued and switched and was sort of promised like, oh, we'll eventually – like when we – when we can mess things up so much that we can do our crazy gerrymanders, we'll make sure that you're you're safe. She just sounds like an incredibly weak, cowardly woman who who just, you know, I think Sammy makes a joke, had the spine of a scallop, just nothing, just instantly yeah. faltered. Yeah, Jezebel did like a thing where they interviewed one of her former staffers and the staffer, because, you know, we've talked here to be like literally where, what, who paid her basically. And this staffer was essentially like, She's really just that petty, mm -hmm. and she had a bunch of weird, random, petty grievances. Like, she felt like she wasn't that, like, Planned Parenthood didn't, like, recognize her in some way that annoyed her. Ugh. And you, you guys should go read the article. It's on yeah. Jezebel. But it's basically a bunch of weird, random, petty things like, they were mean about my flag pin. The Democrats didn't stand up and clap for me at this one thing. Like it's it basically this person who knows her said like it's actually just true pettiness of being like, well, you guys were mean to me, so I'm going to ruin abortion access in the entire <laughs> state. entire region. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Because it is for like people in the South, people have been traveling to North Carolina, South Carolina. At, it's like North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia and Florida are the places that some people in the South have been able to go. Florida's six-week ban is like tied up in the courts right now, but if it goes into effect, then that's done. Uh, South Carolina's trying to push through a ban. North Carolina just did this. So it's going to be, they're going to be left with Virginia, basically. Which is really, really fucking far from Florida. Yeah. You know, it's just so like, and I mean, this is the kind of shit, I'm sorry, 
This is the kind of shit that I think of when I think of like every every woman should be leader. If a woman was a leader, there'd be no wars. It's like that's not true. (laughs) You need women that real equality is us being just as bad. Yeah, it's just as bad, but also like I think that people want acknowledgement or whatever for doing the bare minimum and like a true like progressive or a true like ally to women and and champion is someone who's going to do the right thing, whether they get acknowledgement or not. Can you imagine if, you know, Harriet Tubman or like people integral in so many movements just said like, fuck it, I'm going to fucking ruin everything. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't get enough acknowledgement. Like th- that's part of the, and you're not, she's not even doing anything special. She wasn't even doing anything special. She just wanted acknowledgement for being there and showing up. No, a yeah. participation trophy, really. We'd mm-hmm. know her name if she was a badass progressive in a state legislature because we know those names. We know Mal- we know Megan Hunt. We know Mallory McMurrow. Yeah. Like, we know who and I am missing so many. Uh we we know their names. They come up, they go viral when they have those moments. So it's like you're right. She wasn't like what 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 did she really want? Her sort of lukewarm yes Republican votes. Well, I really uh, yeah. Well, she never felt strongly enough uh, about protect like she wanted acknowledgement, but it's clear like girl, if you're if you're willing to sell it out for 12 weeks, then you actually didn't you never mm-hmm. really cared about this and that shows through in your policy. So you want us to be praising you for something that you didn't feel passionately about anyway because if you did it doesn't matter what people would do you would fucking do it anyway so that's just kind of my thing is like um now it's it's really affecting millions and millions of people because she didn't get acknowledgement and in that way it's Mm -hmm. justified for her and and then, she, and then, if you say anything about her, if you criticize her, she's like, "Oh, cancel culture!" You know, it's just like, "Fuck you." Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we will keep our eyes out. I, I need to. I know I have some DMs I need to look at about the recall effort, so we can try to amplify that. I really think that that could be successful. And you know, not to North Carolina voters and voters within the South and people that are activists and grassroots. You guys are amazing. And I know you work as hard as you can. It's worth pointing out to the people that like, I, I saw a TikTok that like, there are some, there are some of these GOP state legislators, legislators who even with gerrymandering won by like 200 votes. And you, you just know there are 200 people in that area who support abortion rights. So like, it really is like, it's so boring to hear vote and turn out, but it's like, it it does matter. Elections does have consequences, matter. and it's like it even really they matters. have they have they have they have entrenched minority rule so much. However, the good news is that like the things that we believe are actually the most popular. It's just people take for granted how how often, and they they really do need to turn out. And also, like those organizers did elect enough Democrats to I mean, stop yeah. this mm-hmm. from happening. They unfortunately, one of them just turned out to be completely and she won petty. by a lot she's just yeah. deranged i mean it is sad though like because they the people who are organizing that state did what they needed to do to make sure they elected a democratic governor they did not have a supermajority. they did not elect a supermajority of republicans but because of basically like a dirty trick they're now subject to to this and that is like I mean, it's I I can only imagine how infuriating it would be for someone who worked on her campaign, 
or has been working on organizing in North Carolina. Going door to door for this fucking lady. Who do you think is more disappointed? The cinema, cinema canvassers or (laughs) costume canvassers? I I don't know, but they should start a group or start meeting on Zoom to just talk through it. Maybe (laughs) Cotham just because, just because like Manchin gets, I don't know, Manchin did do the fucking climate bill. They really should have a support group. Yeah, <laughs> I just think, yeah, for voters who have been tricked by yeah. someone who acted like they cared we about certain issues. We should make a PSA. Issues, <laughs> right? Yeah. right? Oh, gosh. Yeah. All right. Next in the main news is the writer strike. It's been a minute since we discussed this in detail. The strike began on May 2nd. WGA leadership sent a letter to members this week stating that the studio's negotiating committee quote, refuses to negotiate a fair deal to address the existential crisis writers are facing. I don't know the specific details. I'm sure you can look into it, but just sounds like a lot of progress has not been made. Mm-hmm. And I think in these past couple of weeks, you've sort of seen things, um, you know, changes being made that are going to lead to like a weird next couple of months. The, this week was Upfronts, which is where networks put on these big parties to try to attract advertisers. These are very expensive uh, events. I think most of them were canceled last minute and made remote simply because um, so that attendees couldn't see the picketers and that, you know, there were people saying this company does not pay us with the money you're giving them. Uh, some TV shoots, I think Billions has been paused, not because of the strike necessarily. I think they were happy to keep filming, but people are going there with the the picketers are just in the scenery. And so they're like, all right, well, we, we can't do this. And sag after his national board voted unanimously last night or this morning to recommend that the union's members also authorize a strike in advance of their upcoming negotiations for a new film and TV contract. So Elise, you are a member of sag after What does I that am. mean? Um, so basically SAG's contracts are up at the beginning of June. Kind of, it's basically the same thing as what happened with the WGA, but the Mm -hmm. WGA's contracts were up earlier. So Now, the same thing is happening with SAG. Um, I believe it's June 7th that the contracts are up. Mm -hmm. And so the way it works is that, like, they have to vote to send the vote to us. So now, so yesterday, the national board voted unanimously to recommend a strike vote. So now the strike vote is going to get sent to us, the members. I'm intending to vote yes. And what that also means is so it doesn't if if the vote is yes, that doesn't mean like, okay, we're automatically on strike. It means that if the negotiations are not like met, an agreement cannot be come to like be reached then we will go on strike. But given how the WGA negotiations went, which was, I mean, the streamers rejected literally every single proposal, Mm -hmm. even the ones that don't cost them anything, like the stuff around AI they rejected, which is actually a really huge deal for writers and actors because it's not just not like that AI could write scripts, right? It's that Mm -hmm. in order for AI to write scripts, it ha- you have to feed it scripts that have already been written. So it's like using your work to put you out of work. And with actors, what's really scary is, number one, they could just straight up take your likeness and use and use AI to do stuff with it. That's and crazy. also, similarly, they can feed AI your face, all the actors' faces, and create a new weird fake AI person, which, you know, if you see all those, like, weird AI images online, those are created by, like, aggregating images of other people. So part of the negotiation is, like, we don't want you to feed 
our likeness, our writing, our work our to voice. AI. Our, yeah, voice, everything to create new work that you don't have, robot work that you don't have to pay for. And then there's a really similar issue with regard to residuals, which I know we talked about with the WGA strike, but residuals are basically paid out to writers and actors based on when your stuff reruns, when people rewatch it. Back in the network days, this actually came out to a decent amount of money. Um, It was enough for you to kind of live off in the time in between jobs. Now it's in streaming. They don't want to say how many people are or are not watching their shit, which I think is like my personal theory is that that's the biggest motivator is that they do not want to have to say who's watching their shit when how much it's being watched, both because when it's being watched a lot, they'll have to pay more. And also, I don't think they want to have to admit the shit that's not being watched at all. Yeah. So, um, they don't want to change how the residuals work because that would require them to be open and transparent about what's being watched. And it would harm their stock price. Yeah. It would really harm their stock because. And that's everything. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's everything to them. You know, Netflix says that millions and millions of people are watching it every day. And if they have to admit that not, that's not that, then the value of the stock price will go down and it will hurt investors. Yeah. And I think they also, Honestly, all these fucking like CEOs at the top who one of their salaries for like the top guys like David Zaslov is the mm-hmm. HBO guy, Max. Bob Iger, whatever. Uh, right. I'm so sorry. It's Max. It's Max. <laughs> um, so I one of their salaries is equivalent to everything the writers are asking for. I don't know mm-hmm. how that like shakes out with the SAG stuff, but like with breakdowns, when you see it's like. David Zaslav's salary for one year is what in total the writers are asking for. So $250 million. Yeah. Yeah. Is what he makes a year. Which is so insane. But I think another thing that they don't want to have to be upfront about is that they're not good business people. They flooded the market with 15 fucking different paid subscription apps. And guess what? People... Signed up initially. Now they're losing subscribers. They broke the industry, basically. They broke how the Mm -hmm. entire thing works by just kind of doing this scramble for apps and content. And they don't want to have to be accountable for how bad that decision actually was. And it's kind of what Millie was talking about. Again, it makes them look bad to their shareholders. It makes their stock price go down. So like, I don't even think they're really holding on to it for the money, I think they're ho- or mm. not because of what it costs. They're holding on to it because they don't want to look bad to the shareholders. They don't want these stock prices to go down and they don't want to have to be transparent about what is being watched and when and where and by whom. Yeah. I think that's such an interesting like approach to it because it's not just the money on the charts that they're sending around. It's that they stand to be humiliated. It's that they stand to be told you've been working on a business model that is obviously does not work. I mean, we've seen multiple companies fall and and then you see, you know, the inner workings. But um, yeah, they're definitely holding out for more. They have more to lose than just these, you know, $100 million sums. Yeah. And I just, you know, industries change and transform and evolve. And because of the streaming era, it did allow for 
much more diverse voices, many more experimental things. Like some of our favorite series that were women led totally, or, you know, became only because of streaming, because before it was all about trying to be appealing for, you know, this quote unquote white family in the middle of America and stuff, you know, so there, that was their argument against taking risks with voices. Um, Mm -hmm. but what ends up, what ended up happening is again, um, they use this change in this evolution, quote unquote, to make, you know, and this is again, so, so, so indicative of so many other industries. They use this change to get the people at the top more money get shareholders more money and the people actually doing the labor to get less and less money and turned what was a viable career that thousands and thousands of people had, you know, because before if you shot a commercial or you would make whatever $5,000 that day or or 25,000 or whatever, and then get residuals enough Mm. so that you're able to not be stressed out in between jobs. But when these jobs last for six weeks instead of 22 or 25 and um, you're not getting any residuals. It's just hard to make a living. Meanwhile, these guys, these all white guys, these all old white guys get more money. So it's kind of, you know, and AI, you know, again, for example, Elise is a voice actress. She gets paid a day rate. She gets paid a thousand dollars, for example, or whatever. Yeah, you know, if something goes wrong or if they need to reshoot her thing, they would have to pay her that day rate again. With AI, for example, now, oh, you know what? We put your voice into a computer, and you don't have to come in anymore. And Elise loses that day rate. Yeah, Elise isn't yeah. even here right now. <laughs> this, this is Elise. <laughs> I mean, Elise, you have been on so many episodes of the Betches Up podcast that, like. I wouldn't be surprised. I, they, I I could be made to say I think a lot of things, but <laughs> but that is, I mean, that is kind of like the existential threat. And on the actor's end, too, um, while one of the things the writers are really fighting for are these mini rooms, the fact that they're hiring less writers to do shorter seasons and it's making it more of like a gig economy. Yeah. The same thing's happening to actors in the sense that um, what you get paid for, let's say, like a guest star role, which like uh, a co-star is when you come on and say like two or three lines. It's usually like under five lines, really small. A guest star is where you're playing like a significant part in the episode, right? Mm-hmm. And that used to be the type of job where you book two to three of those in a year and you're actually financially set because of the residuals because of what you're paid to do that, because mm-hmm. of a lot of different factors, that's going to set you up to meet your health re- insurance minimum because you have to, for SAG, you have to make $29,000 to qualify for the health insurance. That's a lot of money if you're not on a TV show that's actively running. That's a lot of different jobs because a day rate for like a co-star, it can be as little as 500 bucks. So the there's been this issue with like, take it or leave it deals where like you're getting way less money for these kind of larger guest star appearances. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you maybe would have to book six or seven of those. And that's really fucking fucking hard. And you're working. I think it's like, 
yeah, you might have not have a project, but you're working. You're working on auditions. You're working on packets. Do you guys get paid for auditions or to do packets? That's a whole other issue, okay. Amanda. That's a great question because – In media, increasingly people are paid to do edit tests. But um, it yeah, seems and that, like that, that took extend. a while, but oh, forever, not even everywhere. Yeah, and I think everything you both said sort of um, you've added a lot more context and personal anecdotes to what I hear a lot, which is that writing should be a job that people can have as a career. Yeah, like I think we all need to be on the same page, and that means compensating people for temporary work at a higher rate. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, we're going to move quickly on to And Are Men Okay? Okay, do you all remember when Josh Hawley announced he was writing a book on man- ma- manhood? Honestly, <laughs> no, I, I can't even fucking say mind. it. Yeah, I'm like, blocked <laughs> it out of my mind, honestly. <laughs> well, that book, it's coming out. It is titled Manhood, and uh, Josh Hawley's on his book tour. <laughs> That's really funny. He, it's just Sorry. called Manhood, the working title. Is it Manhood? Like a- it's a term for penis. Yeah, I know. But yeah. also, like, I'm like, isn't that kind of like an anti-circumcision? <laughs> <laughs> he is definitely an antactivist. I'm sure that appears somewhere in here. Josh Hawley began uh, an op-ed that he published this week to Fox News' website with the words. With the words. He answers our question right away. Josh Hawley himself says, all is not well with men in this country. Wow. He goes on to write, the left, I mean, I could quote this whole thing. The left has spent decades running men down, blaming them for everything from climate change to the patriarchy. I mean, he says they're wrong. Strong men aren't the problem. For America, stronger, better men are the solution. Better men, yeah, certainly. Yeah, it's like, I guess I don't disagree with the need for better men. I (laughs) Well, yes, we do blame men for the patriarchy because that's the definition of the word. Mm-hmm. Um, climate change. I mean, I guess in the sense that like men own a lot of the businesses and have been well, world yeah, leaders. They still this are the ma- driving a lot of the decisions. Well, exactly. Also, yeah. too, I'm sorry. Like literally, men have more cars and eat more meat. And those <laughs> contribute to climate change. Sorry. 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 Mm-hmm. Sorry, no, so sorry. I, yeah. Josh Holly, I, I I guess here I'm sort of anticipating maybe maybe you you all listening with your straight husbands. You know, I've had a couple interesting conversations with male friends of mine mm-hmm. about this crisis of masculinity. You know, Josh Holly notes some problems I think that we are all alarmed by and want to solve. There are high rates of loneliness mm-hmm. um, among men, and in this case, substance abuse and suicide. Uh, many men have not adapted well to a society that has decided to reward people other than straight, white, cishet men. I think we all agree it's better for all of society if its members are not suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue here is that I think most members of Josh Hawley's party generally only agree with this statement when the subject of that suffering is 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 people exactly like them. Mm-hmm. We don't hear about, you know, there aren't any books by Josh Hawley about uh, – the crisis that women are facing in this country. And rather than reimagine our social support systems to, I don't know, free all of us of society mandated gender roles, Holly is really just complaining that the left has beaten out of men the masculinity they need to survive and thrive. So there's really no, you know, 
talk a lot about a time. We say all the time, these politicians need to just have some fucking imagination. But he's like, no, no, no. We all need to reconfigure ourselves so that we can thrive like manly men used to. to. And to top it off, he connects attacks on manhood to attacks on Christianity, saying that the Bible (laughs) offers the best roadmap for how to be a good man. Millie, you want to read this quote? I just want to hear you read, get through it. The story of the Bible is more than a collection of familiar tales. It is an invitation to men to find their place in the cosmos. This sounds a little woo-woo to me. Sorry, (laughs) back, back, back. To find their place in the cosmos, to take up their role in a grand drama that supercharges their lives with meaning. This is a word salad that honestly, a gay friend of mine, I have a gay astrology friend who would yeah. literally say oh, this. It, yeah. At it's least giving the astrology. invitation. Yeah. Invitation to men to find their place in the cosmos and supercharge your life with meaning. Baby, that's Shawnee Nichols. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, reflections on reflections on this and also for those people who are thinking, girls, but men need a little bit of help. You know, like, should we not be laughing at this? I don't know. The other day I was like dunking on something and I was like, yeah, this guy said Title IX worked too well. And a male friend of mine was like, well, and I was like, oh, Jesus. Okay. I yeah. think I need to get a little – understand where a lot of you are actually coming from because, yeah, I think there's a conversation that needs to be had about addressing serious issues that are causing men's alienation that are societal issues and just like men not being up for being good people. Well, it's also interesting to me, right, that at the end of the day, what Josh Hawley is complaining about is that women getting more rights, being able to be in the workplace, being able to have credit cards, being able to file for divorce without having like burdensome legal bullshit. I he's saying that that has caused a crisis in masculinity, mm-hmm. which is like what part of true of this like masculinity, like why is the masculinity threatened so much by just women getting basic rights? Because no one's stopping men again from eating a bunch of meat, buying a big car and driving it around and having it go vroom <laughs> or chopping a tree down. Not even stopping or... you from buying a weapon of war. No. And also like, if you look on TikTok, there are all these like, like people still have traditions quote unquote, traditional biblical roles in their home, if that's what they want and if that's what works for them. The only thing that's happened is it's not legally mandated that you must live that way. So it's like what these people want, like Josh Hawley's solution to the crisis of masculinity is to put women back in the home as that's what he won't say yeah he won't say all the things that have improved for everybody else no and it but to the but you know this is to go a little woo woo is that thing of the scarcity mindset of like other people getting rights Mm -hmm. other people getting things means that i don't and and the reality is there's enough work and shit for all of us and we don't have to operate that and i'm sure it also has to do in conjunction with you know us realizing that you know marriage and children and all of that isn't the only way to live it's not the only way to be happy and also like a lot of the things that you know masculinity thrived on you know 
even oppressing queer people. I'm like, oh, so so it's not just about women either getting more rights. It's also like, yeah, you know what? If you want to wear nail polish or go do this or marry a guy or anything, like you have that right too. And there's, you know, it's just more spread out. Um, and it's just kind of sad because there is there are things, again, like this is a societal problem, but it's just like, Women have been their whole life set up for, uh, you know, what makes a good wife and a good part and all that shit. And like, we don't set society has shifted where like now women and people are talking about what makes a good male partner? What kind of men do I want in my life? And all of that. And, and, and before it was just them being a man was enough. A guy splitting half of the bill or a guy just paying rent or whatever was enough. And now it's like, no, you need to like spray. You need to help pay rent. You need to help wash dishes and you need to be there for me emotionally. Well, what the fuck is this? But the yeah. Bible says. The Bible says I don't have to do that. Actually, yeah. it doesn't. You're wrong. No, no, no. But Josh Hawley's, you know, and it's just like, it's just, again, no imagination. It's sad. And I mean, you know, um, yeah. it, the, the, my just my last point is that it's crazy that male enhancement and male enhancement pills is always about like dick size and not like... <laughs> Can you imagine if male enhancement was like serotonin or like more emotionally <laughs> intelligent or like yeah. turning down the range, the rage in their yeah. thing or getting the brain receptors. To and yeah. And it's for the same something. reason that we like don't really have good drugs to like help menopausal women get wet. Like, why isn't that a concern? Like, like we have plenty to make old dicks hard. Sorry for listening with your kids in the car today. <laughs> but I, this is a lot. It's like a lot of people that want to that are trying to address the issues that men are having in this country, which are real. Like, but it's also, it's like, it's like, sometimes I listen to all the stats and I'm like, are men, like women are just better and we're doing better. And so a lot of the, a lot of the solutions they pose, they don't interrogate that this would then take away, um, not advantages for women, but just the way that the, the playing fields were, were even, that's all we want. That's, that's, that's all of we want. So they propose all of these things we need to return to without really acknowledging that that's, that's not costless. Mm -hmm. Like that's what, that's what no. bothers me. I think we should have a conversation about how to make men in America less miserable because miserable men in America are a danger to all of us, Yeah, but it's yeah. not by taking things away from, from the people that have, are, have had, you know, for a couple decades first started getting some opportunities. Absolutely. And I, I just feel like there's this, I think what we're seeing right now, this quote unquote crisis of masculinity has a lot to do with for literally centuries in this country and in the world, masculinity was tied to being able to dominate, control, and mm -hmm. essentially own a woman. Mm -hmm. And now that ability, that one piece of the masculinity puzzle has been removed. There are plenty of other quote unquote masculine things that you can engage in all the time mm -hmm. that are still there. But a lot of men who grew up expecting to be able to have a woman that would basically be their little helper for all of their life, uh, they're finding that that's not the case and they are struggling with that. And then also, I think that you know, this masculinity culture has done a horrible job teaching men how to be emotionally open, available, mm -hmm. and all of this stuff. And now we're in a society where that is being expected of them. Mm -hmm. And that is hard. 
Like that is hard to just one day wake up in a world. I mean, it, it didn't just happen overnight, but like to find yourself in a situation where it's like, oh shit, I spent my entire life being told, don't cry, get the yeah. fuck up, go to work, don't say shit, da da da. And now actually I'm finding out that in order to have a partner, I need to cry. <laughs> cry about <laughs> stuff and listen. like be emotionally open and listen. Unless you're and Tam- a- Tom Sandoval. Crocodile yeah. tears. <laughs> I mean, listen, he's crying. He's crying a lot. <laughs> listen, I'll give him that. Tom, Tom Sandoval has has interrogated his masculinity. I no. will give we will give him that. The white nail polish maybe interrogated it a little bit uh too much. We we have time for one voicemail today. We're actually working on a full episode of voicemails for you soon. So please keep us flush with anecdotes, local tea, pressing questions, and more by calling 212. 212- 287-5244. I will put that in the show notes today. If you have left something super juicy and you're wondering why we haven't played it yet, it might be because it was too juicy. We will play it. But for that special episode is when we're going to go in and add the bleeps uh, so that we're safe and don't get sued. So we're going to save those those spicy ones for an upcoming episode. I have to pop off now, but uh, Elise and Millie are going to do your listener at Town Hall today. So I'll let them Absolutely. Before we go into it, one thing I did want to say is that hearing you read that excerpt from Josh Hawley's book made me want someone to use AI to have you do his entire his entire book <laughs> his audiobook. <laughs> so if anyone's like in the AI industry, we've got a lot of episodes of this podcast. Um, I think that we can make that happen. Anyway, let's do what Amanda left us to do, which is listen to this voicemail. Hey, ladies, this is Aaron from Michigan. Just wanted to let you know about some tea going on in the Michigan world of politics. Basically, if you don't know, Michigan GOP is kind of a dumpster fire after the most recent election and how badly they failed. So they have a new chair that's been appointed, and she's extremely divisive and has split the party in half, and some people hate her. She's kicked loyalists out, and those people are now suing the party. It's just this whole thing. I won't go into all the details. But it has culminated with cell phone footage of two Michigan GOP people getting into a physical fight over this at a hotel, both drunk. Wow. One slaps a cigarette and a phone and a drink out of one's hands, and the other one throws a really bad punch and misses. Uh, you can find the article on Bridget, Michigan's Bridge uh, website, and it's it's a doozy. It's pretty entertaining. Thought you might like to know about it. Okay. Hold on. A video shows a verbal and physical altercation between McComb Republican Secretary Melissa Fellis and Kalamazoo GOP Chair Kelly Sackett. Oh, my God. First of all, thank you so much, Erin, for calling in. Yes. We love it. We this we live for this tea. One thing about me, my toxic trait that I thought was kind of a secret, but TikTok, my TikTok algorithm knows. I'm a watch a fight video. Yes. I don't want to see absolutely. <laughs> I don't want to see anyone die. I don't want to see anything too gruesome. But a fight video, a Karen, two Karen's. I'm going to watch it in its entirety. And you're telling me the backstory of two GOP Karens in Michigan? One wearing a jean jacket? I'm watching. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, I'm looking. I'm watching the YouTube clip of this right now. Mm -hmm. And um, it does have, like, a Karen. It's a Karen off, basically, is what's happening. We love the Karen off. Yeah. Wow. 
It starts with finger pointing. I'm doing like a live commentary. Okay, so they're talking. I skipped ahead. So mm-hmm. she moves, the blonde one moves someone out of the way. And then mm-hmm. the other, the jean jacket lady turns around. She's like, excuse me. Who, I'm not listening to the audio. I'm just like kind of narrating this for everybody. Yeah. And then, oh, voices are being yelled. Okay, blonde one is stumbling too. Blonde one seems very drunk. This I don't guy, know if, which one is the blonde one, but she's... A guy tried to separate them. Two guys tried to separate them. Uh, You know? So this is crazy. I'm like skipping ahead because I want to see this lab. Wow. Wow. She just smacked the phone out of the hand. Okay. Wow. And anyway, y'all, I think, thank you, Aaron, for bringing this to our attention. Y'all go on this website, bridgeme.com, Michigan government. (laughs) And, um, this Watch the Karen incredible. Karen off. I know. And it, it happened in a hotel. Wow. Huh. Karen versus Karen. That's a movie I'd want to see. <laughs> that is like a, like a good MCU expansion. Karen versus Karen. It's, yeah. Which Karen? A blonde Karen and a brunette Karen Oof. fight in a hotel. <laughs> which, which one wins? Oof. That's hard. Oof. All right. Well, thank you so much. That was a riveting. Uh, a riveting voicemail. Like we said, we're going to be doing a whole voicemail related episode coming up and stick around for the end of this episode because Amanda and I actually had a wonderful interview with, get this, Chastin Buttigieg, whose book, I Have Something to Tell You for Young Adults, is out this week. We had a really great, nice chat with Chastin. He's truly lovely. So stick around for that. And until the end of Democracy, I'm Elise Morales. I'm Millie Tamaris. And this is a Betches Up Podcast. Today, we are beyond thrilled to be here with Shashin Buttigieg. He's the author of I Have Something to Tell You for Young Adults, available today, May 16th. And he's Shashin Buttigieg. (laughs) (laughs) Happy you are here with us on a Friday. Welcome to Friday in New York City. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Did you just get in? I did. Oh, my gosh. Flew right in. So you're here here for the weekend? No, I'll take the Amtrak back home Um, tonight. Oh, Mm. lucky us. Lucky us. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to take the kids to daycare this morning. So, you know. Yeah, I'm from, um, I'm originally from Northern Virginia, so I'm very familiar with that Amtrak, that Amtrak ride, Mm -hmm. just cruising. Yeah. Well, I want to get right into it. I mean, as as Ariana DeBose could have written in in her foreword to your book, Chastin Buttigieg did the thing and he did it again. (laughs) You did it again. Thank you. Yeah, she wrote the foreword before did the thing became a thing. Yes. But that would have been a better blurb. (laughs) But how exciting as a for theater teacher, theater kid, to yeah. have Ariana DeBose write your foreword. That was really special. When yeah. I was thinking about people I wanted to share it with and, you know, potentially people to chop it around to and ask for a blurb, you know, I also wanted to make sure that I had voices that were similar to mine, but also very different than mine, like queer Afro-Latino woman, found her space and group in theater. Uh, and so she she agreed to it. And I was, I think I was pretty chill. On the call, <laughs> but oh, I'm definitely sure, I'm floored. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So this book you have released and written before Uh, your memoir was released in 2020. And, you know, I'm really curious how you went about adapting this to start, you know, your book, your memoir doesn't shy away from some tougher themes and experiences. 
So, you know, when you were adapting this for younger audience, you know, I read that you completely rewrote it. Mm -hmm. How did you approach that? I mean, how did you decide what you felt like this audience could handle? You know, how did you, you know, when were you like, you know, I should give them credit here that I think they can handle this part of the story? How did you decide what to de-emphasize? Like, what was like, when somebody said, let's do this for young adults, how did you approach it? Yeah. So, you know, maybe to peel back the curtain a little bit, typically when you write a, a memoir, sometimes in the publishing world, they will just approach you and say, we'll pay someone to adapt this and then it'll be out there as a YA book, you know, and I wasn't about that. I used to be a middle school teacher. I really wanted to do this the right way. Uh, I knew my audience. I knew, I knew what the, the goal was. It was to rewrite this book into something I wish I would have had when I was in eighth grade. And it certainly was a mountain to climb, figuring out what to keep, what what not to keep, how to restructure the story, because the first book is very chronological. Yeah. This one I wanted to kind of jump back, you know, jump through time. Mm-hmm. Like when I was on the presidential campaign trail, I thought about that scared young kid back in the hallways and the lessons I learned from, uh, you know, that time in the closet or that time in uh, growing up in a rural and conservative place. So the first book was um, challenging because you're asked to put your life story out there in 200 some pages. This one, I just felt like I knew the mission right away. Uh, as a parent, as a teacher, as a queer person in this country, especially with what we're going through now, mm-hmm. what do I wish I could have handed my young self? And and what do I want young people to take away from that story today in this climate? Totally, and what was it like to revisit the story again as a dad and now with that level of experience. Yeah, so I agreed to write the book before the kids were born and the kids were born while writing this and they wow. really change everything. Now you start thinking about like, one day I might not be here and they're going to read this and will it mean something and will my words still matter to them and will it inspire them or comfort them? And also just being a dad, you know, you, you wear your heart on the outside of your chest, mm-hmm. so much more sensitive and vulnerable and emotional about so many things. and thinking about maybe these words comforting them one day, the things that I would want to say to them if they were facing bullying or, uh, you know, challenges with their identity or just growing up in an environment that makes them feel like they're outcasts or different. Yeah. My least favorite part of the book, I will say, is when you were talking about being bullied and then you finally reveal the bully was Becky. And I was like, oh, no, (laughs) Becky (laughs) wasn't an ally. Oh, no. That'd be a great shirt. (laughs) Becky from the bus. Yeah. (laughs) Really would. Becky was really would. Real fans. So, you know, your experience as a gay person in Michigan, it's a big part of the book. You write in a version out today, quote, it felt like growing up somewhere like northern Michigan made it impossible for me to be gay at the time. You know, sometimes we wonder if the laws suppressing stories about same sex relationships and couples or just that these people exist are kind of designed to communicate exactly that, like to erase the possibility of being a gay person in America. You know, how how would have seeing adults take these take these steps to take away representations of, of you? How would that have affected you as a young person? Because in this, you really do talk a lot about, you know, uh, coming into your identity. Yeah, I feel like if if this were a therapy session, we would we could spend a whole hour. Lie on down. Because sometimes I think <laughs> yeah. about what my life would have been like had I not spent 18 wow. years of my life hating myself, um, thinking that I would lose my family, my friends. I never really saw a future for myself when I was applying for college. I just didn't really have lofty dreams and goals because I was, you know, sort of convinced that I wasn't going to make it that far. And what it would have done for me to have teachers out teachers, I know back at my high school now, there are teachers who are out of the closet. What it would have 
been like to have role models, what it would have meant to have my parents sit me down and say, we just want to let you know that we will love you no matter what, no matter who you are, who you love, there is space for you here. And of course, that wound up to be true. You know, I got to come back home after I ran away from home. My story had a happy ending there. But what would my life be like today if I hadn't spent so much time worried about the opinions of other people and frankly fearing, you know, what would happen should my my true identity be shared with the rest of the world? Um, and that's, you know, yeah. that's something that you can think about and process for the rest of your life. But in writing this book, I felt like I got to make great purpose out of some of that pain by turning around and sharing that with other people, saying it doesn't have to be that way. Here's what you can do for your students. Here's what you can do for your kids. Here's how you can make this country a better place. Here's how you can be a better ally. And here's how you can just learn to love yourself a little bit more. Yeah, one of the parts of the book that was really heartbreaking to me in the original, and I think that you sort of smooth it over uh, in the young adult version, but something that stood out to me is that and, and definitely correct me if this is if this is the wrong interpretation, but there were parts where it felt where, you know, the way that you were sort of living your life is like you also didn't have an expectation that you were going to be happy. Yeah. Like that that even if you pursued these things that, you know, a person with self-respect and self-value would have, that it wasn't going to put you on the path that you wanted anyway. Yeah, I certainly I certainly grew up hoping that maybe one day I could like get married and have a family. And I like many young gay boys, I was like obsessed with theater and mm -hmm. like, well, you know, there's no way I'm ever going to make it to the big city or, you know, make it on the stage. Um, and I'm certainly, you know, grew up in a time where marriage equality didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, the, the idea of same sex adoption didn't really exist. Um, so yeah, I didn't see a lot of promising things in my future. Yeah. Okay. Two things that I wanted to talk about just that you touched on in that answer. So one of the things you talk about in the book is just the impact of whatever queer visibility did exist when you were growing up. So you discuss Will and Grace and yeah. Ellen's coming out, that sort of, those sorts of things. As someone who is now in, you know, one of the most visible queer families, basically, in the country, how does, like, what responsibility do you personally feel as a member of that family and how do you personally handle the pressure of knowing you've got all these kids eyes on you you've also got the eyes of people in a negative way on you like how do you center yourself in that with that level of visibility for yourself and your family yeah the only thing that i can do is be myself and and i felt this you know during the campaign the strong pressure to like be everything for everybody I write a little bit about that in both books, like this everything and nothing mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. mentality, like be everything for everybody, but also like don't stick out, you know, don't embarrass people, um, don't embarrass your community, everyone's watching you, you can't slip up. Um, and I have just sort of pushed some of that negativity and expectation away because that's heavy to carry on your own. But I also don't want to be an example for every queer person in this country because I'm not every queer person in this country. Like I can only speak to my own existence and then uplift the stories and identities and experiences and realities of other people in our community. And so I think it's, I understand the weight that comes from it and I take it very seriously. I know that people are watching our family. I know that um, people have high hopes for us to. High, uh, high hopes for a living. Thank you. Can we get that in the back Can we bring that in? Do we have to buy that? Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like I enjoy using this platform and this privilege yeah. to talk about other people in the LGBTQI plus community 
who have experiences vastly different from my own because we're a very, we're a growing community, we're a vast community, we're an intersectional community. Uh, and I think we are stronger together. Mm -hmm. um, and I appreciate having the opportunity to do that as well. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of the times where we do see you sort of speak up and it tends to be, you know, you, you issues where they are, you know, universally um, prejudiced against the LGBT community. You know, you speak out against, you know, hateful legislation and you've spoken out against other homophobic representations, including when Mike Pence made offensive remarks about your family. How do you decide when you're going to publicly react to something? I'm sure there are calculations for you and maybe you're like texting Peter or how do you? <laughs> because there's cost benefits. So I'm yeah. sure that's a big, you know, that's not nothing to take to Twitter as take to Twitter as Chastin Buttigieg and react. I can't say that like, there's like a flow chart I follow, like, should I tweet? Should I not tweet? But I, I understand that people watch everything I do. You know, how many segments has Fox News ran on tweets that I send, you know, articles that pop right, up exactly. simply by speaking up and saying something. And so, you know, that, that means I have a platform and that means people are paying attention. And so I try to weigh, like, would it do some good for people to see me speaking up in this moment? I will always defend my family. If I were to spend all day defending my family, you know, I would run out of time because right. there are a lot yeah. of people out there with nothing but time on the internet mm. um, and I have things to do. Yeah. But occasionally, like, you know what? I'm going to speak up for my family in this moment, especially with other people with bigger platforms who should know better. Um, and to me, it's like, what if young Chaston had social media and was watching a figure like me, you know, with a family, a young family, and just trying to go about his life and live his truth? people were saying this stuff about him, like what would, what it would have meant for me as a young person to see representation like that. So sometimes I get in trouble because, you know, you don't always want to like punch down or you don't want to give people a platform that don't deserve it, but also people are paying attention and it, you know, can make people feel emboldened or at least represented and cared for when you speak up, especially the trans community. Like if you have privileges like a gay white man, you cannot put all the expectations on the trans community to speak up for themselves. So that to me, especially like vulnerable youth, like you got to speak up. And as a teacher, as a parent, mm -hmm. that is something that I enjoy doing. Yeah, I was saying that as you were talking and it's like, you know, you read your books and you had immense challenges. But as you said, like you are two white men mm -hmm. who are in like a certain part of like assumed to be of a certain socioeconomic status, whereas like a lot of the community is is not. So it sounds like that's weighing on you is like, OK, if we're going to be a palatable version of people's that still need an entry point, I'm how do you kind of think about that? So on the campaign, it was really important for me to, you know, before I opened my mouth to just start doing some listening. I think a lot of people could benefit from, uh, you know, what we said in the classroom, putting on your listening ears mm -hmm. first before you open your mouth. And a lot. so while I was traveling the country, I went to like hundreds of LGBTQ centers. I sat down with activists and advocates and educators, went to health centers uh, because I wanted to learn from other people. Because like I said, we are an intersectional community. And I wanted to learn, especially from the trans community, ways that I could be a better ally. I also had just a lot to learn. Like, I am not trans. I don't know what it means to be trans in this country. I don't know all of the barriers uh, that are in your way. So help me be a better ally. So when I see things happening on the national scale right now, I think a lot of these people could benefit from just slowing down before jumping into a culture war and just mm -hmm. learning and listening and trying to empathize with people like, as Americans who are just trying to go about their life and exist freely and safely. And so I understand that I have, you know, immense privilege in many ways. And so for me, it's just like now I, I was that young kid who never thought that he would see this day and this life and this happiness. 
certainly this platform. So now I want to turn around and like extend a hand. Like who else can I, mm-hmm. who else can I, you know, pull up on the ladder? Uh, what other stories can I elevate? Um, and right now, you know, with at least writing this book, it just helps me think that maybe this could help other parents, other teachers, and other young people who are just questioning whether or not there's someone out there who is extending that hand, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. And you have a great, when you're talking about, you know, bullying that you experienced in the book, which I think is such an important topic for any like young adults who are reading it, you have a line where you say something to the effect of like someone who's bullying you, they're probably hurting. They probably have something else going on. And I do think about that when it comes to the Mike Pence of it all, because it probably is probably pretty hurtful to see a mayor from your own state win the Iowa caucus and you're getting booed (laughs) at the NRA. Like that's probably hurtful. You didn't say it, but that's, that's just a thought that I had. Just sipping from your just a thought that we had something that might have been hurtful yeah. for him. But. I mean, <laughs> so you were writing this book. It sounds like you started. So you started adapting it before you had your kids. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I mean, I'm curious. You know, we've seen more increasingly these laws literally banning books. I mean, your books have a queer love story. I guess did yeah. did that ever occur to you? Like, wow, like my. It's just crazy to think that this beautiful memoir about like hope and happiness and finding yourself and finding love that anyone would think this this doesn't belong in yeah. front of children. Yeah, I mean, if it is banned, that would just be politics because yeah. I I am a former teacher yeah. and <laughs> I wrote a completely age appropriate book. Um, <laughs> but I also think you know a lot of this book ban nonsense is is it's just politics, and I do think some of it is um, you know an attempt to erase the queer community, and I just the discussion of of LGBTQ people in this country. Like if if this book were banned because there's a young gay person talking about growing up gay in America, then you would literally just be trying to erase the story of, of a young gay person. And I think it's really funny that you and I, we probably grew up reading the same story about like a 14 and 15 year old who fell in love in one day and then maybe con- got married, consummated mm-hmm, that mm-hmm, marriage mm-hmm, offstage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then killed themselves out of love. Do you remember that story? <laughs> yeah. Romeo I remember being a substitute teacher showing me that movie at age like 10. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And that wasn't inappropriate. But also, if you don't think Romeo and Juliet is inappropriate, which I don't necessarily think it is, we trust teachers. We trust teachers to make educated decisions. We trust parents uh, to speak up for, for their children. Like as a teacher, I would have loved to have had more parent involvement. Mm-hmm. Um but these mm-hmm. conversations about like parental choice and and you know uh, book content, I think is just a, a way of like guising the erasure of LGBTQ stories and people because it's never about straight stories. Right. No. Right. No. That's actually just reminding me that when we watched the. I think it's like the Romeo and Juliet from the seventies. We watched it in one of my English classes, and my teacher made. I just have such a vivid memory of my teacher making a speech, being like, "You will see a butt." <laughs> in this movie and everyone has got to be cool or we're turning it off. <laughs> yeah, a, a man in tights, just and tights. Was, that was the most obscene thing I'd seen. And it was here too for. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Romeo and drag. Yeah. I think uh, now we're now we're on to our fun our fun question segment. <laughs> yeah. We're moving on from yeah. queer trauma. <laughs> Check. Well, I did want to get into some theater kid stuff. I'm Great. a resident theater kid of the uh, of the podcast. Oh, allow so, it. Um, number one, uh, I guess this is a more serious question, but as a theater teacher, you you know, so many queer kids find refuge 
in their theater programs, in the theater department, maybe even in a time where they're not comfortable being out yet or yeah. they don't even fully know themselves and their queer identity yet. So how did you approach that as a teacher in creating a space for them to, you know, you talk, I, I think in, the, in like the first chapter about all the like, things your teachers would say to be like, he's eccentric, yeah. he's yeah. quirky. Like, how did you find space in your program for those kids without putting a spotlight on them that they that wasn't for the stage? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a huge advocate for theater education. Mm -hmm. And I used to incorporate theater education into our classroom work in social studies and English. And then when I was teaching theater, what was most important to me wasn't necessarily the the subject matter on the stage, it was creating environment in which we were all allowed to be goofy, eccentric, creative, which, you know, we focused on teamwork, listening, empathy, showing up for one another. And those are the great lessons that I took away from theater. When I was in theater as a young kid, I was there because I could pretend to be anybody but myself. Mm -hmm. So I could be loud and goofy and I could be uh, really energetic. And that was talent. Right. Yeah. Um, but what I was doing was running away from myself. I, I didn't have to be chastened. I could be anybody or anything on the stage. And so I knew as a teacher, some of those kids seeking refuge in the theater classroom were just looking for a space in which they could let the rest of the world fall away and be somebody else, even for 45 minutes. Um, I've always tried to incorporate those lessons, you know, admission into all that I do as a teacher. But I knew in the, in the theater classroom that was really important, you know, for some kids, a really, really important space because you could pretend. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes pretending for young people is surviving because you're pretending in the hallway, but you're pretending as yourself. And when you come into the theater space, you know, you're the you're the king, you're, you know, mm -hmm. the uh, singer number three, whatever. You're just pretending and you get to feel alive and talented and special in that space. Did you have like a favorite musical or show to put on with the the, the kids? Did you did, Was there one that like clicked that you felt like with your students more we did, often? We did this Harry Potter satire one year. Oh my God, amazing. <laughs> oh, you're talking kids, to the right person like, again. The satire was great because like it, it invited kids to be goofier and goofier. Yeah. It was like, you know... Get yes and. Like, yes and everything, mm -hmm. right? And it was supposed to be, like, really cheap. So, like, their, <laughs> their you know, robes were, like, old graduation gowns, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, they're riding around on, like, old brooms yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had these kids who, like, did not talk to each other. Um, not become friends, but I think just empathize with one another. Mm -hmm. Because you're in that space, you're working on this project, and you see one another in a different light because you're doing this goofy thing and you're making people laugh together. And I could teach them a lot in social studies and English, but I loved being a theater teacher because I felt like so many other life lessons came out of those experiences. Totally. And just sidebar, scale one to 10, how excited are you for the Wicked movie? <laughs> oh, two parts? Yeah, are I you know. kidding me? Capitalism, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. yeah. They're like the gays and capitalism. <laughs> We can do two parts. Yeah. One part of your book that I really related to when I read it, um, 
you kind of discuss your securities pretty candidly. I am I am also, I don't know if this still applies, but I am also the less buttoned up, worse with money, less practical member of my marriage. And I just really related to how you discuss sort of like broaching certain subjects with your husband, Secretary Pete Buttigieg, Transportation Secretary. But, you know, I was thinking a lot, um, you know, I imagine your husband's transition into the administration put greater demands on on you to sort of handle the household, especially as you've, you've welcome children. Um, how did you manage all of that change? I mean, to give him a lot of credit, actually, we we have a pretty fair balance of, of home life. So obviously, when I'm working from home, that means I technically have more ability to do laundry. Are you laundry. telling us that men are capable of equal partnerships? <laughs> yeah. Well, I and I sort of hold him to it. And he is a great partner in that sense that he also understands it's important to carry your weight. And it's not like he's coming home being like, I am a cabinet member. <laughs> I will not be folding the laundry. But like, he tells me you'd be like, yes, you are. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, I'll do more meal prepping yeah. for the kids. He'll do more like laundry folding. Mm-hmm. I will at least get it washed mm-hmm. and into the dryer and then he will yeah. fold it. It's my least favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The folding is really where yeah. it's, uh, that's where it really gets me. Cause I'm also in a building where like my laundry room is in our basement. So it's like, once I get it all back up the stairs, yeah, like, I'm you, like, no, folding laundry was optional this. until yeah. I started living with my partner. He was like, you gotta fold this. Stuff. <laughs> you gotta pay your bills and you gotta fold this stuff. Yeah. So I really, <laughs> this, uh, there, uh, he is fantastic at divvying up workloads and. Does he have a spreadsheet? Um, he always has a spreadsheet. <laughs> Not so much for like home life. Okay, good. You know, it'll be like, I'll tell you what, I'll go to, Co- I will go to Costco. I'll take both kids. So I will push a double stroller and drag a cart through Costco yeah. and like get all of our groceries and I'll go to Target and get all the things they didn't have at Costco and I'll be gone for three hours. And while I'm gone, can you please fold the laundry yeah. and then like tackle the pile of bills? You know, and like every weekend is a negotiation. Yeah. Like That's genius because he's yeah. leading with, you don't have to go to Costco with the kids. Yeah. <laughs> you're folding laundry. You know, you're kind of like push and pull. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And every it's always different, like whenever there yeah. there's time. But what we have found out is like it's usually easier if someone has both kids. Sometimes we'll divide and conquer. Like I'll take one of the kids, he'll take one of the kids. But if, if you have a kid, yeah, focus on everything. advice to yeah. twin parents or expecting twins' yeah. parents. That's fascinating. So you usually yeah. just try to give one another a break. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's for work. Sometimes it's just like, how about you go for a run with your friends? You know, in the morning, I'll handle breakfast and morning playtime, and you can have like a couple hours to yourself. Wow, that might yeah. must be the most like. I think that might be the most practical advice we've yeah. had. It's like one person takes them both yeah. and the other person does their stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What's you, like the swap? Yeah. What's this the most magical thing they've done recently? The kids? Yeah. Everything. I, you know how people, I know people say like, oh my God, someone's showing you pictures of their yeah. kids. Mm-hmm. Like when someone pulls out their phone, <laughs> especially if someone doesn't have kids, but like I'm obsessed with <laughs> yeah. my kids. Like they are so cool and funny and beautiful and like, Penelope had a messy bun this morning that was just like on point and she like points at the little drawer um, by the front door and says yeah. glasses Aww. and she gets her sunglasses and she like puts them on her face oh. in her stroller and she's like ready to go out the door with her messy bun. A woman who knows yeah. what she wants. Did she they have fun at the Easter egg roll? It's incredible. I don't know if it's like <laughs> fun. fun at the Easter egg. You know, there's like a ton of cameras and it, it, it was like hot and the kid, Penelope didn't want to wear her, you know, jet little jumpsuit that yeah. I got. I thought it was really cute. Uh, you know, it's just uh, wasn't our style. But like, anytime I feel the weight of the world on my shoulders, or I'm disheartened by politics, I turn off my phone and I get down on the floor and I play with my kids because oh. they are so incredible and they remind you of what's important, what yeah. matters, and like their vocabulary is exploding. Gus is like obsessed with birds. 
he points out every bird, every dog. Um, and you're like, yeah, there are a lot of birds. In this world. Like, <laughs> I stopped noticing birds, you know, and he like waves at every bird. So they just. Do you notice their relationship to each other and like how they're that, very different that, people? Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Penelope likes to be with me all the time. Gus is very independent, loves mm. reading. He'll play with like magnetiles for like 20 minutes by himself. No interruptions. You know, there's a place in New York City where it's like it's like a it's like a it's like a summit. It's like a gathering place. It's just full of magnetiles. It's like on the weekends, it's like crazy. It's it's the place he, to go. He will build like a cube with magnetiles, and then Penelope will go no, and then crush it, <laughs> and then he will just like rebuild the cube, and she'll go no, and, but like he doesn't get upset. Like it's just a game. I love it. Oh man! Really oh gosh! Something yeah. to, uh, so precious. I can't wait to see what she grows <laughs> yeah. up like. Uh, I also love how much of your memoir is about dating, and specifically, uh, you know, how dating men can be a challenge, despite <laughs> despite all the rewards we just talked about. You met your husband, Peter. Yeah. On Hinge, what advice do you have for people on dating apps? Oh man. Um. I remember when I went on a date with Peter, I was like pretty stressed out on the apps. Oh, really? Like so many bad dates. And I was really tired. And I just started being more forward about what I was looking for, what yeah. I wasn't looking for. I didn't want to waste my time. Pete kind of pokes fun at me at dinner parties sometimes about how forward I was on our first date. Really? Um, it's just like, here's where I see myself going. Here's what I'm interested in. I'm not really down to get my heart broken again. Like I had terrible breakups and, you know. But I don't get the like, I just watched How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days on the airplane. The <laughs> um, I don't get the like stress we put on ourselves to put someone forward that is not truthfully us. Like, why would mm -hmm. you want to pretend to be someone out, out of the gate and then reveal yourself to be somebody different? And so I remember being a little forward on the first date, but ultimately that was a good thing. And you guys have been talking for a while when you yeah. had your first date, right? Yeah. So we've been talking yeah. for about a month and then yeah. I... Uh, wound up driving from Chicago to South Bend, Indiana. So. Oh. See, talking on the apps for a month can can work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I assume you brought it over to text. And we had two, I think, two yeah, FaceTime FaceTimes. dates. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, um, I have a similar thing with my husband in that he makes fun of me for how forward I was when we first got together because we had, like, known each other um, around, and I had been in a, a relationship, got out of it, saw him at a comedy show and he was like, how are you? And I was like, single actually. <laughs> wow. I love that. And hey, here I am married. Yeah. So. yeah. I do think it is ironic that I asked him on our first date, where do you see yourself in five years? Oh. <laughs> I was also sitting thinking the whole time because it is a, a pretty prominent theme is fishing. And I was like, did this man have a fishing photo in his hinge profile? Did you have Me? any fishing? Yeah. No. No, you didn't. Despite actually being a skilled fisherman you did not have a, a holding a bass picture in your hinge I, profile no. that's straight culture yeah yeah do you remember what <laughs> his profile yeah well that's how i found out he was mayor because he had strategically chosen a picture of himself speaking at a podium with his name on it that's so a i choice. googled it and he was like i wanted to get it out of there yeah you know? that but, is smart though because it's like how do you bring up that you're mayor yeah. you should just put it out there yeah like, but at I the time he like wasn't Pete Buttigieg. Right, yeah. right, I mean, right. He was mayor, mayor of Buttigieg, yeah. But it, it wasn't anything like today. Uh, but it was very intimidating, and it was almost a turnoff, but uh, <laughs> worked out. Yeah, it worked out, worked out. Speaking of when Secretary Buttigieg takes the kid, are there any shows that um, he won't watch that you have to watch on your own? Like any guilty pleasure TV shows? Oh, man, we do not watch really? TV much anymore. But 
it's hard. Like we will pick one show at a time. Yeah. Um, I just tried to catch up on Succession last night and mm. I fell asleep. It's, it's a little, yeah. I just, it's a sleepier one. Yeah. Uh, Did you watch I'm The so Diplomat? Tired. He wants to watch The yeah, Diplomat. Yeah, I bet. Like, can we finish, <laughs> you know, one show? Um, no. Uh, I started Yellowstone mm-hmm. and I was like, hey, I'm starting Now you're show. a dad. And, you're officially a dad. Well, people kept telling me to watch it. Yeah. So I, it like the first two episodes were on the plane. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I told him last night, I was like, I'm starting Yellowstone and I think you'll like it, but I can't handle juggling multiple show schedules uh-huh. with you. So I'm just going to let you know that I'm watching it. Yeah, that's kind of a sleeper. A sleeper comedy recommendation from the yeah. pod. Um, Jury Duty yeah, on Prime is so funny. It's uh, Did you finish it? I, I just started. I just watched the first couple episodes, but it's um, 12 actors and one guy who doesn't know it's not a real jury. Oh my and God, it's so, so it's amazing. Funny. And it's a good dude. They found like the best guy. Yeah, they guy. found the sweetest like man yeah. and everyone in it. Um, some of them I know a little bit through like comedy things. Everyone is so funny. It's this like all improvised. It's so good. Highly recommend jury duty. And the episodes are like short and it's an easy watch. And I mean, I was laughing out loud. I, love it. I did funny. watch Hacks so without him. And the other two, I was obsessed with that. Oh, the other two just, just came yeah. yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so good, so good. Okay, a few more rapid fire pop culture questions. Okay. What is your favorite female vocal performance Carlos. of all time? Oh. See, this is where people are gonna be like, oh, give your gay card back. <laughs> um, we ask all men this question, by the way. Straight men? We're, well, we were just saying- I need a reel of straight men answering this question. We're gonna start. We we wanted to, we had a couple questions that we asked Ari Shapiro that were really fun. We were like, oh, we should ask like all gay men that come on the podcast. But we realized that was prejudice. We're like, we don't have a lot of male guests. We're like, we'll just ask all men that come on the podcast. So, so far it has only been gay men answering the it question. What's your favorite? <laughs> See, this is why I could never be on game shows because I feel like my brain freezes when it comes yeah. to like superlatives. I don't know why my brain is immediately like Whitney Houston singing the national anthem. That's what we, no, that's like, that's literally the, one of the answers we came up with. Yeah. No way. Yeah. What was the one that he, he, he said, said he else, said Coachella, which we were yes, like, that's Beyonce, Beyonce Coachella yeah. performance. Yeah. But then it was an my, interpretation. I yeah. presented Whitney Houston national anthem. I think that that no is, way. Yeah, yeah, I think. I mean, gay card returned yeah. <laughs> as a single as a single performance of one person standing and singing one song. Yeah. Have you ever been to the American History of Smithsonian in D.C.? Oh, listen, <laughs> you, I'm a Nova girl. Okay, I, you get it. Yeah. I, the, <laughs> the First Lady's Dresses exhibit yeah. is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite things. I was just there taking my my parents through there. And when I was coming through the, you know, the flag, like the flag mm-hmm. exhibit. They had a video compilation of people singing the national oh, wow. anthem, and I remember sitting there being like, "You better have it. You better have it. It better be <laughs> in here." Homophobic. If they did. And then she was in there. Like, yeah. Did yeah. they have "Let's Get Loud"? <laughs> they have that one. Oh. Or was that the anthem? One? Or no, no, that was she. That was J Lo, but she wasn't singing, doing but the She anthem. was singing "This Land Is Our Land," and oh. she added "Let's Get Loud," which is one of oh. our famous favorite moments in what, just history. of all time. Oh, yeah. Freezing people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were talking about Fergie singing the national anthem. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did you? That was also. You would have been there. Sorry, this is in not person. a rapid fire section. No, no. So. You would have been there in person for Let's Get Loud. Sure, sure was. Wow. That's <laughs> probably one of the four people out there going, woo! <laughs> wow. Wow. Oh, yeah, we talk about Let's done. Get Loud often. So. Yeah, it's really a moment, <laughs> a moment in the canon. Like if you invite JLo to the inauguration. Speaking of, that does bring us to our second of two rapid fire questions for our men. What's your Great. favorite JLo movie? I was going to. Uh, mm. There's no wrong answer. I immediately wanted to say Made Manhattan, but... That was my answer, too. Really? (laughs) Nobody said that, as in Ari Shapiro didn't say that. (laughs) Of all the men we've had on the show, (laughs) none of them have said Made Manhattan. No. 
Yeah. She has a new action movie coming out, mm-hmm. right? I think so. I, isn't it called like Mother or something? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. do you do you have a favorite a favorite Broadway show? It's oh, no. a hard question yeah, you don't for need any one. theater kid to answer. Yeah, I mean, Little Shop of Horrors was one of the first ones I saw. Mm. Incredible. I just saw Ben Platt in Parade. Did you? Incredible. I need yeah. to go to Parade. Let's go. I saw Sean yeah. Hayes in Goodnight Oscar, which was <sighs> incredible. Um, Have you seen Titanic in New York? Because I know you're a Celine fan. Yeah. I was just here was it last week, two yeah. weeks ago, to tape the Drew Barrymore yeah. show. Oh, and yeah. brought my mom and was determined we were going to go see Titanic, and it was dark that night. Oh, yeah. It's it's really good. Um, the like off Broadway little shop that's going around right yeah. now here is really good. I felt um, like a good like a gay rights passage is like taking your mom <laughs> to New York to see Titanic. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. She's like, are we going to see Lion King? Like, yeah, no, better. no. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a Celine Dion jukebox. Ju- ju- <laughs> yeah, I'm seeing it for the third time next month. Incredible. Yeah, Amanda is like the, the Titanic stand. I don't know why. I just like, I just went the first time and I was like, this is home. It's joyful. This is home. It's yeah, joyful. Absolutely. Well, there, far. Yeah. Wherever, wherever you, you are. are, wherever you are. Absolutely. There was one last thing I wanted Great. to tell you before we sent you, send, send you away. Um, we had your husband on maybe a week out from the 2020 election. And I will never forget that when we were, when we finally got to our, he was so on message the whole time, professional. And when we finally got to, I was like, we're going to ask our silly question at the end, which is what, what, what is your election night wine of choice? And the way <laughs> your husband was just like, well, of course it's a wine from the great state of Michigan. I was like, this is a professional. <laughs> Uh, immediately like, get out the vote to Michigan and I was like yeah he's just he, in the I zone was, yeah, yeah I was like and that's why that's why you get Pete Buttigieg on the campaign trail for you yes so I was so impressed in the zone yeah he, truly I, it was the most in the zone thing I've ever seen and I was like I remember we logged off and I was like damn yeah. he really did that you were definitely <laughs> probably on um, back to backs today thank you yep. so much that is our show until the end of democracy I'm Amanda Duberman and this is the Betches Up podcast bye the Betches Up Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Rebecca Sousmacat. Editing by Rebecca Sousmacat. Social media by Amanda Duberman and Bridget Swartz. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails at suppod at Betches.com. Betches.